0: To me, it's not a green version of what we currently have. It's not a, a, a what I sometimes call biofueling the Hummer. We are talking about a paradigm
1: shift. Welcome to Climate of Change, a five-part podcast series presented in partnership with Ulster Bank, featuring Northern Irish startups who are tackling the climate challenge. Today's episode is a panel discussion on the role businesses should play in tackling climate change featuring Belfast City Council's Sustainable Development Lead, Claire McKeown, Queen's University's Professor of Green Political Economy, John Barry, and Ulster Bank's Regional Director of Entrepreneurship, Lindsay Cunningham. Thanks so much for being here, and we really hope that you enjoy So yeah, look, uh, we're just going to keep this extremely conversational. Um, I guess to kind of kick us off then, if we leave sort of the organizations and the bullet points and our core messages behind for a second, you know, what about for each of you personally? And I'll start with you, John. Like. Do you remember or do you have any sort of idea where you first personally started to take an interest in climate change and the environment?
0: Yes, I can. I can even uh, not quite date it, but I certainly know I I was an undergraduate student in University College Dublin in uh, the mid-1980s. I was working in a well-known hamburger fast food place, (laughs) McDonald's, uh, to pay my way through university. And I remember a discussion in the the staff room about a report that had come out about the Amazonian rainforest being felled um, to provide the space for uh, beef. That was then, of course, being used in terms of, you know, the products that we were uh, providing. And it was my first time to really have a, a sense of the global dimension. You know, this is before where a lot of businesses now want to source locally and Irish beef and so on. And I remember being absolutely appalled uh, that, you know, little old Dublin and people in in the 80s in Dublin didn't have a lot of money, you know, going to McDonald's as a bit of a treat and saying, well, people engaging in something that's kind of positive and providing jobs and so on, although very low-paid jobs, it has to be what we would call precarious work uh, in, in contemporary parlance, was connected to this global commodity chain, which was very unsustainable. So I... Um, protested against this in terms of asking management naively could they change supply chains and not using those terms of course being told he's naive and you know um wet behind the ears and so on so I remember um that I actually on my last day in McDonald's I stripped off in protest um and ran around the store <laughs> in O'Connell Street this is true as <laughs> God uh, I wow. ran around. Uh, t- now, it was a bad move because it was a Saturday night in Dublin and people were all fairly uh, merry and jolly. So they thought I was it's just of entertainment. <laughs> whereas what I was trying to call out was, look, people, you're, you're engaging in ecocidal, you know, bad environmental practices. Now, chased around by two security guards and then who caught me eventually after about 20 minutes running around the store. And I remember that was my first awakening. And as Claire, would particularly know, I went on then to be a fairly left-wing radical politician, ended up being uh, in the Green Party via the Workers' Party. And in fact, I served seven years as a Green Party politician here in in Northern Ireland. But my origins go back to that awakening that, you know, what I thought was an innocuous, uh, you know, uh, exchange of business actually was connected with these much wider senses of the, the world and the bigger world than we little Dublin that I grew up in so that was my moment of political epiphany so Claire if she hasn't been shocked already by many of the things I say <laughs> and do there's a new one for you and now for all the world to hear it's recorded on a podcast there you
1: go it's finally out there the world's been waiting for it uh, Claire what about yourself
2: oh nothing nothing as exciting oh as go that, on but... surely there
1: is
3: <laughs> <laughs> nothing that I'm gonna share anyway. <laughs> I'm so glad that Claire was asked to follow that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I suppose my interest goes right back to childhood. you know I remember being very young being interested and, you know, my parents grew their own vegetables we had a lovely garden um, and we were surrounded by trees some of them now maybe 100 years old and even from very early age we were like, playing in the garden and my parents showing us how to grow radishes and really small things like that but you never forget you know and then you know, children are fascinated by nature and environment. I, uh, just last week, I found out I'm the owner of about 100 tadpoles that have <laughs> uh, landed in Congratulations. my back <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, landed in my back garden. And um, I never had uh, frogs born ever in my life. And I was telling my next door neighbours, um, Sophia and Dylan. And Sophia came around and had a look at them. And she said, Claire, you know something? Dylan's learning about this school and he's only mm. three. So over came Dylan. <gasps> You know what happened first, Claire? The legs come and the legs, feet are webbed. You know, he was only three or four, maximum. And he's able to tell me about the, the growth of a tadpole. Incredible. And he's so excited, you know. So shout out to my next door neighbors who, you there know, enthused goes. me. And it soaks in at an early age. And then, you know, we were surrounded by trees as well at home. So I knew they were just for me to climb on. And on. Track <laughs> <laughs> so I got to climb faster than the boys and further. Uh, you could see, you know, your whole home from a different angle, you know, yeah. and uh, it reminds me of a lovely Seamus Heaney poem that I, I can't remember the, the name of it, but he writes about the tree at the end of the lane and how, you know, seeing everything from a different angle. And I suppose then got into school, I uh, went to a convent primary and grammar school, a big interest in nature as well, you yeah. know, and took us out. And then at university, uh, you know, Secondary school geography teachers, brilliant geography teacher, loved it, you know, and biology teacher who took us away and out of the class. And that was just class, <laughs> so class. class. Yeah. And you remember the days you were out of the class more clearly than you remember what you were, were taught, you know, and had a take down from a board.
1: Very cool. Lindsay, what about yourself, the whole idea of the environment and climate change? Because something we've been talking about in this series is. You know, it, it is, in terms of general public and lots of people talking about it, it is quite a recent thing, you know, and I, I even remember, you know, when I was growing up in school and I was born in 95, so I'm relatively new to the scene, we only started getting climate change stuff, you know, once we started hitting secondary school. So where did your kind of interest or curiosity about it come from?
3: Yeah, I, I suppose similar and picking up with Claire. I probably didn't realize this, but, but when I was young, I... I I was that friend who would have told other people off for littering. You know, just, we have we live um, on the just on the coast, so uh, Bangor, Groomsport, that kind of area. So I've always been around the beach and just hated seeing litter. It was just something that really irked me. So I, I definitely was that friend or encouraged my mum to to compost, etc. Um, But when I was reflecting on this, thinking, actually, what were some of those moments or, that made me sit back? And, and I really defined it to two. So I don't know if you remember that advert. It was a Greenpeace advert with Emma Thompson, the one, and I can still just remember, there's a rangtang in my bedroom. And I remember just reading about that and really trying to understand. And it was just almost like a light bulb moment. Yeah, and yeah. then the second one, Justin Hoffman's image of the seahorse with the cotton swab. Mm. And I just thought, this is absolutely insane. Like, And I could actually see that this was starting to encroach on things that I was familiar with. And I mentioned there the beaches. You know, just this week, like Malise Beach had a diesel spill. Wow. I take my son to Malise Beach and I just think actually everyone is really impacted by climate change and we're really starting to tangibly see it it's not the things on the tv or the things that people talk about anymore mm-hmm. i can just see it more and actually i think similar to yourself matthew it's it's come into my life more within the last couple of years and i suppose just one other thing on it i i would be really passionate in professionally but also personally around diversity and inclusion you know I'm a member of um, lean in network women in business etc and I think one of the other angles on this is that we know climate change disproportionately affects women and those in poverty. So, again, that really rings true to some of my values that actually there's a big part to play here if we're going to get that that inclusion or that equality that that is important to me to strive for.
1: Uh, talk to me a bit about the commitment that Ulsterbrank's made to... Take on quite a high percentage of startups that are to do with the environment, because that on the surface seems like quite a bold thing. But as we've talked to more and more people in the series, I'm like, oh my word, there's actually great business opportunity in this as well as the social cause.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for context, we've made a series of commitments, um, particularly around our our financing um, commitments, supporting our customer to transition, as well as our our own emissions. Um, But particularly for the Climate Accelerator, which you'll be familiar in Belfast, we have about a thousand spaces right across the UK, and we've committed 25% of those to climate businesses. That's in alignment with our purpose, but also it it it's the right thing to do. And like I mentioned at the the top of the call, Belfast was actually oversubscribed. It was the the fastest off the mark in terms of people applying for the climate accelerator. And actually, it, it's that bit that we talked about whether it be a social enterprise model or a um it, it's about sustainability. More and more of our customers and um, supply chains, they're demanding this behaviour in business. It's becoming an integral and not not an add on anymore. So actually. To me, if we look at the way technology had to be adopted by businesses or, or arguably they could be left behind, climate is actually one of those things now.
1: So good. So, John, I mean, you know, you, uh, you at least go through various stages in your life. You've talked about the different kind of roles that you were involved in. Um, not sure if you're still stripping down a McDonald's, although if you are, please feel free to correct me. Uh, how do you go about tackling this issue in your day to day job? What are the areas that you're most interested in?
0: Well, to paraphrase the sunflower bar, I think Ulster suffered enough uh, in terms of me <laughs> uh, bearing my lockdown bods all, all and all in sundry. Um, I mean, to pick up on the theme that, we've, that both Claire and Lindsay have pointed out is the importance of partnership working, is that I, I, I am passionate about the importance of non-violent direct action I do really believe that the young people striking for the climate, Extinction Rebellion, we're going to need that. But we also need researchers, but I need businesses to move in this direction, certainly local and national government. Now, for me, the the, the analogy I'm off, I often use now, some people you know, don't like it and I appreciate that, it's like a wartime analogy where we need to mobilise all the resources of our society towards this massive threat, which is the planetary crisis, it's not just the climate Issue. It's also the biodiversity crisis. We're we're now living through the sixth great mass extinction event. But there are tremendous opportunities to live in a different type of society that's much more sustainable, low carbon. You know, in my view, we need to move from the, the current unsustainable capitalist model, which is the dig and gig economy, a kind of an extractivist, precariously paid workforce based economy to the care and repair one one where we're caring for each other, you know, if nothing else, the pandemic has revealed the importance of those who look after uh, the sick and the elderly. And we need to do a lot of repairing in terms of nature-based solutions, investing in natural capital, uh, rewetting our bog lands, growing trees, and all of these are job-creating possibilities. I mean, in the current moment that we're in, the pandemic and as we come out of it, we're going to need a job-creation machine we're going to need ways in which we can have a, a shared vision such as we can. And I, and I know that's difficult in the context of Northern Ireland. I think there are uh, genuine differences between people in terms of what this green economy looks like. To me, it's not a green version of what we currently have. It's not a, a, a what I sometimes call biofueling the Hummer, that we somehow <laughs> t- t- take out carbon, coal, oil and gas, and we stick in wind energy and that's what was good about that report that lindsay referenced that we did in the climate commission is that we found in that report for example that if we want to build back better for belfast if that's not too much alliteration let's retrofit our housing stock and our buildings because that's our single biggest uh, carbon sector that's uh, you know increasing our carbon budget that would provide jobs in the city keep people out of fuel poverty you know, improve their health care and remove that health burden on the NHS. And increase the local economic multiplier effect in terms of creating a more resilient
1: local economy. I, I just scribbled it down quickly. I'm not sure if I got it right, but could you just quickly unpack what was the sixth great mass extinction event?
0: The sixth great mass extinction event. It, basically, in the evolutionary history of the planet, uh, we've gone through five mass extinction events, and what that is is that up to where up to where ninety percent of all living entities on the planet have died out. Of course, the one we remember because of things like Jurassic Park and World is the the dinosaurs. But we are now living uh, in in the backdrop of the sixth great mass extinction. But the difference, of course, is those five other ones were, were due to natural or cosmological, you know, the comet that came and wiped out the dinosaurs. What we're going through now is as a result of human systems of energy production, food production, globalization. So it's anthropogenic, it's human. Uh, humans are the cause of it, or the systems that we've created are the cause of it, and that's the the sixth great mass extinction.
1: Crazy. I mean, Claire, you've you've obviously seen this whole space and industry change so much. I mean, I'm just looking here, even at your bio, as as I'm listening. Like 2001, that seems like, in terms of this whole space, it seems like such a long time ago, and so much has changed, even in the public opinion. Like, what are you up to now in your day job? Because you have such an amazing track record of doing all this great stuff. But what are the most important things that you're drawing your attention to now?
2: Well, I suppose my job, um, it covers both internally in the in the council and what we can do externally. So I'm trying to get our organisation um, really geared up in terms of education and opportunities. You know, we're a big landowner. We have something like 150 buildings that we manage. All of those need an energy supply. 300 dirty diesels, um, uh, which we need to look at in terms of, you know, converting. And we have made some uh, uh, big changes there. We've got 10 electric vehicles now, um, but that needs to change further. So, you know, operationally and strategically, I'm working on a day-to-day basis with the council. And, you know, all our departments are open for change right through, you know, from city and neighbourhoods to place an economy Um, and again it's driven by the chief executive and a bunch of councillors now who really get this agenda we have um, representation now for the Green Party, substantial representation compared to what we had years ago. Um, and we also have every party totally supportive of this uh, this transformation and the job opportunities. So that's a bit about the internal work. Externally, um, I've been engaging with John and others. We talked about the PECAN project and John referred there to the mini Stern report that we had commissioned. And that's a really important piece of work for the city because it looks at the economics of decarbonisation. Where is your carbon and how are you going to get a route map out of the carbon dependency. And as John says, it points to the retrofit of our buildings, both in the domestic sector and our transport. So if we can start to tackle them with really sound data, which is what that mini-stern is, then we're in a better place. We also have a climate plan for Belfast, which was written uh, in conjunction with a new Resilience and Sustainability Board. And that's a very important body now that's across the city. There's representation from most of the public sector um, you know, I'll not list them off, but when our water The port, you know, anybody with a big uh, a big estate and a big agenda who's delivering the public sector around that table. And we're all collaborating. And I cannot emphasize how important it is to share all of this knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm. We're picking up from each other, you know, um, and, you know, in PECAN, we're talking to the financiers. You know, this is the PECAN has given us the opportunity to bring the climate financiers together with the climate strategists. that's never been done before. And the Ulster Bank are in there with us. You know, we're engaging with pension funds and what Lindsay um, didn't say, which I thought was really impressive when I first started talking to the Ulster Bank, is they put a thousand of their NatWest and Ulster Bank staff through a master's in climate um, policy I think from one of the Scottish universities and I was thinking brilliant at least you have a bunch of people you know engaged on the science and why it's so important and then understanding how the finance then has to change to make everything happen and happen fast and I suppose I'm keeping an eye all the time on government policy just this morning Boris announced a new ambitious target at 78% reduction I think in greenhouse gas emissions by 2035 you know You have to be living under a stone not to realise that the (laughs) world has changed and is changing really fast. And it's up to us to keep up with that and open up those business opportunities, you know, and it's all engineering. A lot of it is engineering. And we have a heritage of innovative and industrious engineering in Northern Ireland. We still have the skills and the people there to transform uh, these energy challenges and, and, you know, drive new opportunities. We have companies like RightBus investing in Northern Ireland because the skills are there, the knowledge, the experience, Mm -hmm. and they want to scale that up. And that's not just about greener buses, that's about a green energy supply chain, green hydrogen that um, is powers that whole new industry Um, and again the speed at which you know the market is changing globally and I I hear that Joe Biden's going to make an announcement on Thursday you know with the American government and new policy uh, changes there too which will be transformational it's all happening at at a huge speed my job is to keep up with it all and try and (laughs) try and bring people with me but you know we've got to bring everybody with us and that's part of my job too.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just on that note of that that rate of change, you know, I, I was reading something that you put out uh, recently, Claire, and it was, you know, that I, that fact that you know, by 2050 and just under 30 years, two thirds of the world's population will live in cities. So just to kind of open a question up, like how can we as a city start to prepare for some of these climate challenges and start implementing some of these solutions that we're just frankly going to have to put in place if we're going to really get a hold of this thing? I think it's
0: things like we need to start integrating spatial and energy planning uh, and redesigning our cities so that we have green and blue spaces. I mean, again, the pandemic has been a salutary lesson in that we've realized the importance, not just for our own sanity and well-being, but also for air quality uh, and, and the basically, you know, high levels of well-being in cities. We need to have open spaces. So I think it's about redesigning our cities. I think it's also about bringing life back into the city. So bringing people back to live in the city, you know, having um, uh, attention, as, as Claire said, a lot of these changes are kind of infrastructural, you know, buildings, the fabric of our buildings, you know, can we start being really innovative and say, well, we're not going to allow buildings in Belfast uh, after the year 2025 unless they're, unless they're net energy exporters. Because at the moment, almost every uh, building that we have uh, anywhere across these islands is going to be a net energy importer, and that's something about government policy. It's also about you know uh, developers and builders and architects who are smart people and not stupid. You put them in the right incentives. I also think it's about, you know, growing more food perhaps in our cities as well. And food is a big issue. But there are solutions out there. And again, farmers are innovative and they respond to regulatory and and market dynamics. So for me, in terms of we need to have our cities livable, they need to be, you know, pleasant places to come in that are not dominated uh, by cars. And this is something I know Claire is passionate about, about bringing in that modal shift whereby whether it's now, again, back to the pandemic of, working from home? Do we need to go into work and the office as, as much as we did? What about, you know, developing what fair play to our Minister Mallon has now done in terms of laying down the infrastructure for, for cycling lanes and walking and so on? Or, and to hand over to Claire then, about shifting away from the internal combustion engine, which is the major cause uh, of, of air quality and air quality problems in many of our cities, to shift away from, you know, cars, based on diesel and petrol, to clean green renewable or hydrogen uh, stored electricity. So that's over to you, Claire, in terms of the uh, electric vehicle fleet and your passion. And also your good news story you can share with the world now in terms of the the big books that you managed to secure for electric vehicle charging.
2: Oh, he set me up, hasn't he? (laughs) Yeah, it is a huge question, particularly when it comes on the back of the pandemic, um, where everything has changed. And, you know, when you consider that people are working from home, the transport emissions are way down. But people have only been enabled to work from home because we have the right digital infrastructure. And there's a huge lesson there. You know, (coughs) if you want to use, if you want to have more people working from home, um, especially in rural areas, we need to upgrade that system so everybody has a fair and fast um, digital Internet speed. I've been working on the um, next version of smart electric vehicle charging in the city. Again, a new technology, which is breaking down regulatory barriers, policy barriers. You have to have new um, relationships between the public and private sector because this new market has to be commercially led. So um, I've been working with this VPATS project, which is really working with Virgin Media, um, repurposing their old infrastructure. So this is about, you know, um, not having to dig up the roads again, but using infrastructure that's already there and can take and carry this new service. Mm. So, we've just secured nearly over, it was over a million, half million pounds to try and trial that in Belfast. Um, but it's not straightforward, there are barriers. Um, and we've been working with the Department of Infrastructure as well, um, who own the footpaths and not own them, but they're responsible for what goes on to them. <laughs> because we know this is a new market, um, especially for the street residential market, how we cater for that in the future is going to be a challenge. But really interesting, um, very uh, technology driven, you know, to put EV infrastructure in, you need Wi-Fi, you need financial apps, you need um, technology, you need electricity supply, you need a wrath of technology that you didn't have when you just went to the petrol pump and pumped, <laughs> put, the, pump, put the, the, the petrol in the car. So um, charging from home, charging overnight, which will take the renewable electricity off the grid at night, which is what you want to do. And then in the future, being able to um, help the whole electricity grid by using the battery that's uh, in your car to maybe fuel your own home from that battery if you don't use your car for mobility. So all of the, these faculty grid solutions are now being pioneered and they're, they're just revolutionising, you know, energy use in at home. And then, of course, the digital infrastructure coming in behind it to enable it is is fantastic. You know, so I'm very lucky to be at the forefront of I'm learning all of this stuff. And my job is to share that and hopefully get others to pick it up. But cities will change, you know, and the cities that get at the forefront with the green hydrogen technology, with the renewable electricity, with microgrids, with um, fast broadband are the ones that
1: will thrive, I think. Totally. And I love how, you know, all of you guys have said that, you know, we're dealing with a population that historically and presently has the skill sets required to do all this, you know. And as you said, John, you know, farmers are smart, innovative people, as are engineers. And Lindsay, what I love about what you guys are doing is you're really at the forefront of, I guess, creating opportunities for entrepreneurs to establish businesses, which will then in turn need loads of employees you know as these businesses grow and develop you know i was just talking to Stephen dunn's um from carbon fit as part of this series and you, know, you can see how that business is just primed to absolutely take off and hire a whole bunch of 16 to 20 year olds the same way he got into the industry you know so you guys are doing the important work of i guess creating a space for job opportunities as well through all this
3: yeah, I think it's creating that space. All of us have touched on that education and that awareness piece. I see, particularly for the accelerator, is there's that nurturing. So we provide coaching, holding the entrepreneurial leaders account accountable. But actually, the beauty of having a dedicated climate cohort has been that peer-to-peer. So what they can learn from each other, you know, and... I think that's one of the things that completely fills me with confidence around the challenge that climate presents in Northern Ireland. Like the innovative talent we have, you know, we know about Artemis Technologies, we know about some of the pilots that um, NI Water are uh, trialing, but actually, you know, Christine Boyle, Synergy, you know, solar panels, mm-hmm. um, and I'd taken just a note of a couple of the entrepreneurs. There's sustainable gifts in Bally Cruddle Farm, Forest Tracker, looking at plastic cups with chicken feathers, you know there's really great minds out there and and they have this passion to make a difference to our climate so I mean that that gives me complete confidence um in in what we're trying to achieve but I I echo what everyone has also said about partnerships and Claire there's probably a, a bit for us to pick up because EVs are something I'm really interested in too and we have announced a partnership with Octopus to make it easier for and and more effective I suppose for our customers um when they're looking at their their infrastructure around electrical vehicles so um it's definitely a hot topic at the minute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess like moving into that broader sort of question, then the, the underpinning of this whole discussion is, and this is as broad as, as they come. So please feel free to take this whatever way you want. You know, what role can businesses and should businesses play in tackling climate change? Because again, I, I come at this from a very stereotypical view where when I think about tackling climate change, I think about the picket sign rather than the entrepreneur and I've had a whole education doing this series that actually I've realized that business has a really, really important role in actually um, addressing this issue.
0: I think um, to go back to that logic of partnership, we are in a very different space. And again, I would, I would go back to what I said. We are, we are not talking about greening business as usual. We are talking about a paradigm shift that to me is on the same level as the shift from a rural, feudal, agrarian economy in the 18th century and then into industrial capitalism that's the scale of what we're at I and mean, we only know we've done that in the rearview mirror i think we're in the middle of it i think we're at the beginning at the end of the age of carbon energy for example uh, in terms of the future will not be one based on coal oil and gas because the planet will simply burn um, and it won't, there's no jobs there's no business on a dead planet and i do think there's a role for business to push governments for uh, quicker, faster, more um, scaled up and indeed aggressive targets uh, in terms of uh, climate legislation. And I do hope to see businesses in Northern Ireland get behind the climate change bill going through the Assembly and to hold our ministers and politicians with their feet to the fire because this is the the new terrain upon which all businesses are going to compete and collaborate. And that's the last thing I would say is that I do think there should be Um, a role for much more collaboration and certainly given the structure of the Northern Irish economy around um, seeing you know, public-private partnerships. Again, let's give you an example of that that Claire has heard me talk about before, is new models of community wealth building, which have been trialled and experimented with in in North Ayrshire in Scotland, in in Preston, in Lancashire. It is a very different model of the economy and how the public procurement budget can be used around cascading down down the supply chains. For example, in in, in Belfast, if you were to add up the, the, the Health and Social Care Trust Uh, Queens, the City Council, Belfast Harbour, Belfast Met and University of Ulster. And these are known as anchor institutions. They ain't going anywhere. Unlike a lot of, say, you know, some forms of businesses, they come into an area and then their footloose capital and they can leave. These are anchor institutions and they have a procurement budget collectively. And we did some rough studies last year uh, within Queens of over a billion pounds of public procurement. Now, where are they sourcing their food? Are they demanding, for example, down their supply chains that each element of that supply chain is a living wage employer? In other words, using that public procurement budget can shape local market conditions. You know, improve and enhance the uh, you know the wages of, of workers, which increases the local multiplier effect in in the local economy. So it's a very different model, or not a very different, but it's a complementary and it can be a. Um, uh, seen as a different model to the current kind of global competitiveness model and that's where i think there is going to be genuine differences of opinions and and differences are good that's what democracy and debate are all about my own view is that part of what we need to be looking at is the selective deglobalization of our economy and we need to actually relocalize important things like food like energy Uh, And so on, which I think are very dangerous to have um, in in terms of a globalized supply chains, given they can be disrupted and so on. So I do think it's about, you know, opening up our imagination that the the, the economy of the future is not going to be a kind of plug and play version of what we have at the minute with a different type of energy system. We are talking about restructuring our, our economies in very significant ways. And we don't have that long to do it. I mean, you know, 30 years that you've mentioned, Matt, already in terms of the UK net zero by 2050. That's not that long at all. But I do think businesses, if they're given the incentives, I think they can act very quickly and respond to this. And many of them already have. Of course, let's not forget, we're not starting from a, a a level zero here. There's already lots of really great, interesting, innovative ideas, even at the SME level. Uh, And I do think that's where we need to start seeing ideas around clustering. How does a small to medium enterprise firm that's engaged in engineering, food production, retail, where they don't have, you know, they can't have a a corporate executive officer whose job it is to look at the sustainability. How how will they be facilitated in a way to get on board with this particular transition? Because it is inevitable. I mean, it's up there now with death and taxes that the future will be low carbon and regenerative. The only question for me, and I'll finish on this point, is whether or not that transition will be just. Will it be just to all the businesses? Will it be just to all the sectors in, in our societies? And we have to make sure that whatever transition we make as as an economy is both sustainable and driven by the science and data, but also has to be driven by ideas of justice. Otherwise, we won't get community or indeed business
1: buy-in. Lindsay, I guess it kind of lands on the plane then. I'd love to kind of finish. I always try to finish in kind of big picture conversations like this. Okay, how do we kind of break this down to the individual? And a lot of the work that you do is with that individual founder or the co-founders, you know, men and women who are starting businesses or who are scaling their businesses. And I guess even on that level, like what can they do or what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint or how can we as business owners start taking steps in the right direction to make sure that we're do an orbit to you know address the climate challenge?
3: Yeah, so I suppose, I suppose for those starting out, touching on Claire's point, if you're if you're starting out, build it into your DNA, build it into the fabric of your business. So again, building on John, it's it's not this add-on, it's actually integral to the way you set up your business. And and arguably, you know, as businesses are starting to come out of COVID and looking at their strategy and what they're going to achieve for the next two, three years, actually if climate can be incorporated incorporated into that, to me that's a really sensible option. Then, when some of the I suppose regulations come in twenty thirty, you're be you've been proactive and you've almost designed your journey rather than being reactive to it. So I think there's that that onus, and we can do that on an individual level. As an entrepreneur or business owner, you can control more of your your supply chain, um, the the way you use natural resources. So I think it's it's having that consideration when you're building out your business model is really important. And it's it's again I, I kind of keep going back to it, but that education and awareness. So actually ahead of this call um there's a lady rushing that i'm friendly with in belfast was said that she'd read john the roadmap and um then she said i need to do better because i'm sitting reading it while i'm eating strawberries imported from spain Mm. you know so they're individual actions um but actually it's in that design phase or or constantly challenging yourself and challenging yourself to do better I, i think is where it for me is ultimately where where it starts
1: So great. I just would love to end, I probably should have prepped you guys for this, so feel free to take a couple of seconds to to think about your answer, but I'd love to kind of end this with a call to action from each of you. So if you could make even just one simple ask from, you know, the people listening, from the listener, what would that be? And feel free to comment that from any angle that you'd like.
0: But perhaps I could begin repeating something I mentioned already. If there's one thing you could do is to get behind uh, the necessary piece of legislation we need here to push this over the line and really start taking the opportunities that we can have in a a low carbon green regenerative economy. That's the climate change bill currently going through the assembly. And I do think we need the voice of business. You know, certainly we have young people uh, supporting it, uh, students. uh, We have environmental groups, obviously, um, as well, because I think Properly designed regulation can drive innovation as a level playing field for everybody. So, if there's one thing you need to do, please support the climate change bill that's currently going through the Assembly.
1: And not to belabor a point, John, but how do we actually do that? Well, it's by um, lobbying
0: our MLAs um, because ultimately they have the um, you know, they represent us. And I think, you know, businesses do have a particular in um, with, with, with MLA's. They know it provides jobs in the local constituency. We do have an assembly election coming up next year. So I think politicians and speaking as a recovering one myself, we're always acutely sensitized around election time. And I think if we get whether it's the CBI, the um, Federation of Small Businesses or that those those um, corporate um, representative bodies coming out strongly. Now they may have issues, and of course they they feel you know free with any piece of legislation they can input their own particular view about how it can change. But I do think this has to be presented as both inevitable, but also extremely positive. It's a game changer in terms of the opportunities that um, you know are there for us here in Northern Ireland. And the last thing I'd say is that something we've not touched upon is that this can help us solve some of the political problems that we're currently experiencing in the wake of Brexit, people's concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Part of our problem in Northern Ireland is that, you know, without vision, the people perish, as the good book says. And as Claire knows, I speak now not just as a lapsed, but completely collapsed Catholic, but the Bible has some good things to say, and that's one of them. Without vision, the people perish. Can we not shape, with businesses, politicians, environmentalists, trade unionists, all behind this agenda in terms of a different vision for Northern Ireland than the one we've come from. I think this is, for me, the the, the political as well as the economic dimension of what it is that we're uh, demanding. And I think our young people require nothing less because if we don't give them a reason to stay, and I speak as an educator who sadly sees so many of our best minds leaving Northern Ireland uh, because they don't see any opportunities here, we want to keep those folk here. So let's build a better, um, you know, Northern Ireland here based around this uh, low carbon regenerative uh, um, agenda for a new economy.
2: Claire. Oh, I'm just going to be really dull and say something like I suppose the biggest impact is how you heat and power your home. Oh, you know, many Let's of us <laughs> <laughs> many of us live in very leaky homes with energy inefficient appliances. So first thing when you go to buy a new appliance, think about the, how rated it is, you know look for the a and b rated stuff um, turn off the gadgets when they're not being used try and get the bill down um, and there's simple things you can do in your home like increasing the insulation your roof wall and underfloor insulation and thinking about air tightness and then think about how you travel to work you know can you take public transport walk or cycle you know many of us live within two to three miles of our workplaces can we think you know coming into the spring and summer get out on that bicycle and think about how you're taking your kids to school in the morning You know, those. Um, a colleague of ours, David Gavin, keeps, you know, bringing this issue up. You know, within COVID, we were all at home, but now going back to school, there was an opportunity maybe to think about how, you know, do you really need to drop the kids off in a big car? And um, can you walk them to school? You know, and that's the beginning of behaviour change um, and keep on educating everybody, brilliant, some brilliant programmes on at the moment. I think is BBC Two, Addy uh, on climate change it was really great the other night. He was in Bhutan and Bangladesh and it shows you the scale of this problem. You know, we don't even, I think, have a have a idea of how this is changing livelihoods uh, for the worst in some of the poorest areas in the world. And the they, the feature in Bhutan is particularly interesting because it's not a wealthy country, but they're allegedly some of the happiest people in the world. Mm. So um, money doesn't buy happiness. I suppose we all know that. But then, um, how can we make sure in this transition that we bring everybody with us and the burden isn't doesn't fall on the shoulders of the poor? Yeah. Um So. I mean, those are my very simple issues. You know, think about your own home, the way you live your life, the stuff you buy um, and keep on educating yourself.
1: Super. Lindsay, just final words from yourself.
3: Yeah, perfect. And picking right up from Claire there, um, educating yourself. So I I loved reading that roadmap. Um, So so kudos, John, Claire and and others who were involved in that. So take a look on the Belfast Climate Commission's website and look at the roadmap, um, particularly for Belfast. Um, I think We can all learn a lot from that. Um, The other bit for me, and it would be remiss not to say, we've talked about the Climate Accelerator. Um, If you're an Ulster Bank customer listening to this, we are now open for applications. Um, Go onto the Ulster Bank website um, or email us at belfastaccelerator at ulsterbank.com. Um, if you're interested in becoming part of that peer community, the coaching, um, some some advice, access to, to um, brilliant mentors, etc., And then the other bit, um, we as a bank are one of the principal sponsors of COP, so the United Nations Climate Change Conference, so COP26 in November. And there's so much activity happening around that. So again, my, my ask or, or recommendation would be to really engage in that um, a, a, and learn. Super.
1: Well, we will definitely put a link to this famous roadmap I can't wait to get a look at it myself and have a read and uh, we'll put that in the description of this podcast wherever you're listening it's also going to be on the webpage connected to this episode and other than that I just really want to say thank you so much to the three of you it's been a pleasure and uh, as they say every day's a school day and this was certainly one for me so thank you thank you thank you, thank you Matt Climate of Change is a Best of Belfast production made possible with support from Ulster Bank who as part of their efforts to lead the way in addressing the causes of climate change, have committed 25% of the places on their accelerator program for climate-focused businesses. If you have a green business idea that could help save our planet, please click the link in the description of this episode to apply to the Ulster Bank Climate Accelerator before applications close on the 11th of June. Other than that, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you have a great rest.